Father, we thank you for being a benevolent Father and a good God. Lord, we thank you for our life, our health and strength. Lord, for all of our many blessings and for our family and friends and for our church family. We thank you for everything you've done for us and everything that you've given us. And we thank you that these type of prayers, we don't have to second guess. We know that it's your will. We know that you want us to draw closer to you. you. We know that you want us to be conformed more into the image of your son. We know that you want us to understand your word. If there's anything that's inside us that's hindering us from doing that, any sin or any grudges or unforgiveness that we may be harboring, help us to acknowledge that, repent of it, and to release it. And I pray, Father, that you would just uh, condition and prepare our hearts and minds to hear your word and to hear the message that we may comprehend it. Uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the tutelage and guidance thereof, because in our carnal mind, we can't understand spiritual things. So help us to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our lives. And uh, help us not to just keep it as head knowledge, but Lord, that it would become heart knowledge and that heart knowledge would manifest into action. Um, We can know a lot of stuff, but if we don't act on it, it really doesn't mean anything. So, Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we give thanks and praise for these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so last week I talked about heaven and what the Proverbs has to say about heaven. So, um, we're going to talk about hell. You you know, it's the yin and the yang. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. And uh, Yeshua actually talked more about hell than he did heaven in the New Testament. But it's a little tricky when you're in the Old Testament when in, in regards to hell. Because uh, some words, especially in the King James, one word is translated several different ways. And the word Sheol is often translated as hell, but but in certain contexts it's translated as the grave. So it really depends on the context, depends on how the translators are going to translate Sheol. Now, some translators have just bypassed that problem altogether and say it's such a complicated word. We're just going to use the word Sheol. And let the reader kind of decide. And they've done the same thing with other words, like in Genesis 6 when it talks about the giants. They were giants in the land in those days. Well, that word's a tricky word too, and it means much more than giant. Giant just doesn't really convey the fullness of that Hebrew word, so they left it as Nephilim, which now we know is the offspring of the fallen angels and and the human women, and they created these Nephilim, these giants, because Nephilim does mean giant, but it means fallen ones. So it's, it's the same with Sheol. And Sheol is the grave, but the grave has always been thought as the entrance, proverbial and literal, if you will, to hell. Now, Sheol, the context of Sheol is that Sheol, you could either be talking about heaven or hell, When you say the word Sheol, it really depends on the context because Sheol, the grave, which also is translated the pit, which is also translated the underworld, Sheol is the hereafter. And the way the ancients looked at it is that it was a place that had two compartments. And so you had this, it's kind of like if you imagine a staircase, you had, let's say there's three stairs. On the top stair is the compartment that we call heaven, that Jesus called paradise when he was talking to the thief on the cross. In the Old Testament, it's called Abraham's bosom. That's heaven. Now, the second stair is actually a bottomless pit called Tartarus. And it's only mentioned once 
in the New Testament, if I'm not mistaken, by Peter. And he's talking about how the fallen angels that rebelled against God, once the flood took place, they were confined to Tartarus until Judgment Day. Then that third step, which is, which is uh, the, the last step, would be considered Sheol or hell. So the afterlife is like a place that has two compartments with a big gulf fixed between. And this really comes out when you read Luke chapter 16, when Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, a lot of people say this is a parable, but I don't think this is a parable. I think this is a true story because he actually hides the identity of the rich man. He doesn't give the name, but he gives the name to the poor man. So in Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19, <clears throat> we will kind of get a better picture of how the ancients looked at the afterlife. Now, there was a certain rich man. Now, when he says a certain rich man, that means he's being specific. That means he's talking about somebody but not giving out the name because it was a certain. If this was a parable, he could have just there once was a rich man. A rich man. Could have been any rich man. But he says a certain rich man. That's why I think this is a true story. And if people knew this Lazarus, and beggars are pretty pretty well known. Like if you live in a big city and you go around the city, you kind of get used to the prostitutes that are hanging out on certain corners and the homeless who are hanging out on other corners. And you pretty much know them by sight. And then, you know, you spend enough time in that city, people say, oh, that's old Joe. That's old hobo Joe over there, you know. And so you know who this is. So everybody knew who Lazarus was, this poor beggar. So it says, now there was a certain rich man, and he had habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, which represented he was kind of some sort of ruler, some sort had some sort of authority. Um, so he dressed in purple and fine linen and gaily living in splendor every day. In other words, money was no object. He was eating, drinking, partying, doing, doing whatever he wanted. Verse 20, and a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That would be paradise. That would be heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, in Hades, in Sheol, if you will, he lifted up his eyes, and being in torment, he saw Abraham far away. So this really gives you the picture of that compartmentalization of the underworld where he's, he was at this lower realm or this lower rung of the underworld and he was able to look up and look across that gulf, across that expanse and actually see Abraham. Now, um, if, like, uh, if you're driving in your car, you're sitting high up in your car and you can only see a, a certain amount over the hood. Right, So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's in front of the hood that you can't see just because of the nature of the vehicle. Maybe that's the way heaven is, and the, the, the Lazarus couldn't see into hell just because of the positioning, if you imagine those three-tiered steps or whatever. I don't know how that works out, but you know, apparently Lazarus was oblivious to this conversation that uh, Abraham and the rich man would have. So it says that, Now it came about that the poor man died and was carried away, by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, 
Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. In other words, you already experienced your heaven. You lived it up. You had heaven on earth. You received the good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted, comforted here. And you are in agony. And besides this, between us, there is this great chasm fixed. This is the abyss. This is Tartarus. This is the pit. Fixed in order um, that those who wish to come over here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they all should, should come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if somebody rises from the dead. And you know, ironically, that's exactly what happened. Jesus himself rose from the dead, and nobody believes him. So this gives you a good picture of what the ancients, how they viewed the afterlife and how they viewed heaven and hell. So we want to check out what the Proverbs has to say, what Solomon has to say about hell. So the first place that we're going to go is Proverbs chapter 5, verse 5. And we're going to take a look at three or five main passages. There's more, and we're going to, some of those passages I'm going to, intermix with these five main passages, but predominantly there's pretty much five passages, a few more, maybe seven to nine, that talk about hell. And uh, so the, th the first three are kind of all the same subject matter, all the same thing. So in Proverbs 5, verse 5, it says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol, or takes hold of hell. So who's this her? So we got to figure out the context of what Solomon's talking about. The context is warning his sons, the future kings, judges, nobles, rulers, and ambassadors. He's warning them to steer clear of an, an adulterous and unfaithful woman. So the her in this verse is an adulteress. Her feet go down to death. The adulterous feet go down to death. And I don't think Solomon is just talking flowery or figuratively or spiritually here, because if you read Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, both of those passages say that the, the, uh, uh, the, the penalty for committing adultery is death. It is literally the death penalty. You're stoned. So literally, Solomon is saying, the adulteress, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. If you are caught in the act of adultery, you're going to be stoned. And because you're unrepentant and you, you, die, you die in your sins, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> so it all kind of fits together here. Now, it's interesting that, that um, uh, what Proverbs 6.32 says. Proverbs 6.32 tells us, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He, he who would destroy himself does it. So basically, somebody who has a death wish, 
somebody who doesn't really care about his reputation, his career, his life, his family, anything, he's going to be stupid and sleep with, an, with another man's wife. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. Um, another translation would be he's lacking heart. His heart is not in the right place. Yeah, understanding, heart. In other words, he's not really fully, he's not sitting back and he, all he's thinking about is the pleasure. He's not thinking about the repercussions or the consequences. So that's meaning he's lacking sense. He's not thinking fully through the situation to its end, what's going to happen to him. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it in. Now, there's another passage, and I can't find it. I was looking for it yesterday and couldn't find it. But it basically says the man that God is angry with, God is going to allow him to be destroyed through adultery. Going to allow him to be caught and to be destroyed through that. That God, for the, the guy or the man that God hates, he's going to allow him to fall into that pit, fall into that trap, that death trap of adultery. So back to Proverbs 5, 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Now this naturally reminds us of a New Testament passage because we're saying here that adultery uh, is a death penalty offense. So it makes us think of John chapter 8 in regards to the woman that's caught in the act of adultery. So John chapter 8, there's a whole lot we can unpack here. So in John chapter 8, starting with verse 3, uh, it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. In other words, these Pharisees somehow, some way, walked in on a man and a woman being intimate. So she was caught in the act of adultery. So there's a problem right off the bat. Where were they at to where they would be walking in on a situation like that? So wherever they were at, they were in a questionable place themselves. To me, these who caught her in the very act are just as guilty. And the man? That's my next point, exactly. Second of all, where's the man? Probably one of their buddies that they're one of their buddies that they're trying to protect. Yep. Yeah, this is all a setup. They're setting Jesus up. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her at in his midst, they said to him, Teacher. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law, you know, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Well, if he's the Messiah, he's the king, and he's especially that Messiah that's going to overthrow the Roman government, he would be more apt to lay down the law right there and, 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 and step into his messiahship and his rulership and say, okay, yeah, this is what happened. But they were trying to set him up because Jesus, even though he was the Messiah, he had no business ruling on this matter for two reasons. Number one, he came as the suffering servant. So he's not coming as the kingly Messiah. Second of all, Jesus didn't hold a seat on the Sanhedrin. He didn't hold a seat on the Supreme Court of Israel. He had no right to render judgment. He had no authority, earthly authority, in, 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 the, in the Jewish realm to be able to make such a render such a judgment. So um, verse 6. And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And they, and, 
And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go away one by one, beginning with the older. Uh, and he, the older ones, and he was left alone with a woman uh, where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, my Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way from now on and sin no more. So, um, yeah, the man wasn't present. So even, even if Jesus did sit on the Sanhedrin, even if they marched to the Sanhedrin courts and they set up everything proper, still couldn't render a judgment because the man's not there. They both have to be sentenced together, but both parties. So he did the right thing by letting her go. Uh, all right, so the second passage in Proverbs that deals with uh, hell is on a, on a similar note. It's Proverbs 7.27. Proverbs 7.27. And again, it's talking about another her. It says, her house is the way to Sheol. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So now in the first passage we looked at, Proverbs 5.5, 5, the context was talking about an adulterous woman, a woman that was married, that was unfaithful to her husband, cheating on her husband. Proverbs 7.27 is dealing with a prostitute. So it's a different sin altogether, but in the same realm of sexual sin. The first one is adultery. The second one is fornication. So to be an adulterer, you have to be married and be unfaithful to your spouse in order to be labeled an adulterer. You don't have to be married and have sex outside of marriage or, or without the bonds of marriage. You are considered a fornicator. Fornication. People say, well, premarital sex isn't in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's called fornication. You're, you're having sex outside of marriage. So Proverbs 7.27 says, Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So this is Solomon warning his sons, again, the future kings, rulers, judges, ambassadors, and nobles, to not only steer clear of an adulterous woman, which you can kind of consider a gold digger, because why else would they be wanting to have an adulterous relationship with you? Because of your power, right? So the second is he's warning these same sons to steer clear of prostitutes. Because again, Proverbs 6.26 says, for the price of a prostitute reduces a man to a loaf of bread. For a prostitute, it's only a dollar sign. It's the next meal ticket. That's the only reason that a prostitute does what she does is so she can stay alive and survive. For the price of a prostitute reduces a man to a loaf of bread. An adulteress uh, hunts for a precious life. So for a prostitute, it's almost like sport. It's just like a guy would go out with his bow or his rifle and go hunting a deer. Why? So you can eat. So your family can eat. So it's the same with a prostitute. You're just a dollar sign. You're just like a deer to me. You're, you're, you're as good as the next kill out in the wild. Um, you're, you're as good as, as the next loaf of bread. It reminds me of an old song. Whoa, here she comes. Watch out, boy. She'll chew you up. Whoa, here she comes. She's a man-eater. That's what this verse is saying, that a prostitute is a man-eater. Proverbs 6.26, For the price of a prostitute reduces one to a loaf of bread, and adulteress hunts for a precious life. So basically, he's saying that the door to a whorehouse is but one of many gateways that lead to hell. Pick a sin, any sin. 
It's the doorway and the gateway to hell. And Proverbs 7.27 says, Her house, the whorehouse, is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So, you know, if you say things once, it's pretty important. Say things twice, it's even more important. Say things three times, then it's abundantly important. So Solomon drives this point home again with the third passage in Proverbs 9.18. Proverbs 9.18. So this verse says, But he, the man, does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. So um, the context uh, is, is, is the context is is the consequence or the price of spurning wisdom. Spurning wisdom. Wisdom is often portrayed in the Proverbs as a beautiful woman, a woman that you want to love, a woman that you want to woo, a woman that you want to court, a woman that you want to have a relationship with. But on the other hand, there's another woman. She's more she's more of a of a of a white trash redneck kind of persuasion. She's the one who, you know, who's just loosey-goosey and, and booze and cigarettes and, and, and dressing scantily and has got the muffin top going on, all this kind of, she just, she's it's a, the foolish woman. That's kind of what she looks like. Where the wise woman or wisdom, she's classy, she's elegant, she's beautiful. You know, you just can't uh, butter her up and expect to get something from her for free. Whereas the, the foolish, the foolish woman, it's like anything goes with her. So the context of Proverbs 9 is the price and consequence of spurning wisdom. Wisdom is also God's law. Wisdom is also the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, in the, you know, like I was saying last week, you have certain languages like French, for instance. Uh, they have masculine, feminine, and, juder, uh, and neuter, uh, gender, and nouns, and all this kind of stuff. So it's interesting that in the Hebrew it's the same thing. There's masculine and and and, and feminine. Uh, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, Holy Spirit is in the feminine. So it implies, even though God's a spirit, God doesn't have a gender. God doesn't have a sex. But God has a masculine side. He has a feminine side. The masculine side is His Father patriarchal side. Uh, his feminine side is the Holy Spirit, which is the comforter, the nurturer, the tutor, everything that a woman does. So wisdom here in Proverbs 9 is God's laws, because God's laws are wisdom, but it's also the Holy Spirit, which teaches us how to follow those laws correctly. Um, so this is the context, again, is the price and consequence of spur spurning wisdom and giving in to foolishness. This is, implies one is giving in to their carnal, fleshly pleasures, whether it's gluttony, whether it's thievery, you know, name any of the seven deadly sins, they'll fit there. And in Proverbs 15, 24, um, it says the path of life, which is implying heaven, the opposite of Sheol. So Proverbs 15, 24, the path of life leads upward for the wise. The path of life leads upward for the wise, which makes you think of heaven because it goes upward. And even in the ancient way of looking at the underworld, it's the top tier of the underworld. It's, it's paradise. It's Abraham's bosom. It's heaven. The path of life leads upwards for the wise. So if you follow wisdom, she's going to teach you or guide you or show you how to get to heaven. And the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it says the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So the path of life leads upwards for the wise so that he may keep away from Sheol below. 
So he can keep away from Sheol, which is below. Again, kind of reinforcing that hell is down there, heaven is up there. You know, it's it. So it says the path of life leads upward. So you're going upward, which means you're getting far, far and farther away from below. The more up, the more upward you go, the higher you go, the further away you get from down below. And that's exactly what this verse says. The path of life leads upward for the wise so that he may keep away from hell below Sheol. So out of the five verses that we're going to be talking about and exploring today, three out of five, we focus on sex, basically. Adultery, fornication. So why is Solomon just hammering away at this? Well, Solomon should know all the pitfalls of bad relationships because he had 700 wives and 300 concubine, according to 1 Kings 11.3. Now, a lot of this was just political in nature. When you married the princess of another tribe, another clan, another country, another people, you were basically making a peace treaty. So if you were married into their family, they, they couldn't attack you, right? So a lot of these marriages were political. But Solomon also knew how, how Satan sometimes uses women in crafty ways and uses seduction in order to take them down from a high and mighty place. How many scandals have we seen in our lifetimes with TV evangelists, with politicians, where they're caught in a scandal, where it's an adulterous relationship, they're soliciting a prostitute, they're with underage girls, or what have you. It's all over the place. And after that, that person's reputation is ruined. Politically, their career is over. Uh, religiously, their ministry is done. So it, it's a way to destroy someone. So Solomon is like, beware. You know, you have all this power, you have all this nobility, you have all this wealth, but it can be taken away from you really quick through improper relations with a woman. So he's really trying to teach his sons to be moral, to, to, to have morality, to have a sense of morality. Okay, moving on to the fourth reference uh, to hell in the Proverbs, getting off the whole subject of fornication and adultery, moving in a different direction. It kind of gives a description of, of hell. It kind of anthropomorphizes hell. And what that means is it kind of gives a personality to hell, where it says the hand of the Lord or the finger of the Lord. Well, the Lord doesn't have any hands. The Lord doesn't have any arms. He doesn't have any fingers. The Lord is a spirit. You know, there, we, we can't even make an idol because there's nothing that represents him. We can't make something that looks like God and say, oh, this is what God looks like. God is a spirit. God is light. God is love. That's the way God is described. You shall have no graven images. You know, there's nothing that can represent me in the material realm. Uh, so we anthropomorphize God when you say the heart of God or the hand of the Lord or what have you. So in a similar way, hell is being talked about in an anthropomorphic way. So in Proverbs 15, 11, it says Sheol or hell. Sheol and Abaddon. What is Abaddon? Abaddon means destruction. Now it's interesting because... Hell is eternal destruction. Just as believers get a new body to where we'll never get sick, we'll never die, we're going to live forever, those who go to hell are going to have a new body as well. A body that has that potential and has that ability to be destroyed over and over and over again. So it says, Sheol and Abaddon, hell and destruction lie open before the Lord. 
how much more the hearts of mankind. So this is basically, uh, in, 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 the, in the context of this, uh, this is talking about how God is omniscient. In other words, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. In Psalm 139.8, it says, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So God is everywhere. And in Matthew 25, 41b, it says that hell is made of eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't originally meant for mankind. It wasn't made or created for mankind. But because mankind rebelled, they fell into that same lot of with the angels that rebelled. So there was no other place for mankind but to be with those fallen angels that would eventually be cast into hell. And hell itself would be cast into the lake of fire in the, at the end of time. So it says, hell which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, still talking about... Um, Hell and destruction, Sheol and Abaddon, there's another verse in Proverbs that brings these two buddies together. And it says, and, and this is where the anthropomorphism kind of kicks in. So in Proverbs 27:20, it says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. So it gives a personality, it gives a persona to hell and destruction. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. So when you say never satisfied, you kind of think of somebody that's that 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 can never get full, that can never quench their thirst, that can never, you think of a person. And so it's almost anthropomorphizing hell and destruction. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of a person never satisfied. A lot of times my mom, when I was little, when we'd go out to eat, I would order something that I really wanted. And mom knew that I wouldn't be able to finish it. We'd have to take the rest home in a doggy bag. She says, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Not only that, but, you know, this even still happens to me today. Here I am, a grown man, and uh, I like buying stuff and getting stuff just like everybody else. And sometimes I'll be online and, like, now I, I know what I want for Hanukkah this year. Went to this website. It's called thehumblelion.com, and it's this... It's the Ferrari or the, 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 the Mercedes-Benz of Bibles. And I seen this King James Bible, and I was like, oh, I want that. My eyes were getting big. It's, got, it's goat skin. It comes in different colors. And it's got the art of, of Gustav Dory, who did a lot of the old biblical art and a lot of these old family Bibles. There's like 60-some different illustrations. And it's the King James where uh, it's different because the chapters, uh, the chapter headings are in blue and the words of Christ are in blue. It's got, it's got footnotes and chain reference at the bottom. And all the archaic words in the King James is defined at the bottom of the page. Wow. So it's like, ooh, I want this. And... It, it, it's, it's interesting because you've got um, different colors to choose from. My favorite is the amethyst. It's more like purple. And then there's a pine forest color. It's like a green. And the gilding on the side is the color of the Bible. And then if you turn the gilding, if you decide to get the gold gilding, you turn it a certain way and reflect in the light, you'll see a picture of the lion on it. So it's like, I want this Bible. It's like $200. But you know what? I guarantee you, as much as I want that Bible... When I get it a month later, I'm not going to have that same excitement 
I'm not going to have that same feelings that I have right now because I want the Bible, right? I don't have it. I want it. But when I get it a month later, it's like, oh, okay, I got the Bible. It's a Bible. I'm not going to have that same, and I won't be satisfied. Guess what? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be looking for that next Bible that I want. I'm going to be looking for that next thing that I want. Say, ooh, that's what I want now. So even us as human beings, we're never satisfied. So it says, Sheol and Abaddon, hell and destruction are never satisfied. Neither the eyes of a person are never satisfied. So it's basically kind of implying that there's people, even as we speak, as sad it is to think about, there are souls right now that are pouring into hell. People are dying every few seconds and waking up in hell. And guess what? Never satisfied. And even the Proverbs talk about other things that are never satisfied. And one of those things is fire. There are seven things that, that are never sat or six things that are never satisfied, seven that never say enough. And one of those is fire. You can feed a fire all day long, and it's not gonna say, oh, 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 I've had enough wood. Oh, I've had enough gas or oil or trash. Oh, you can stop now. No, you it, it'll just take whatever you feed it. And the only time is when it runs out of fuel and it burns itself out. It's never satisfied, and that's what it's saying. And it's also implying that hell is eternal. The flames are eternal. You have this heretical doctrine that are being preached by even, by even uh, Canadian Baptists right now that are saying that hell is not forever. You go there, and you'll be there, and you'll burn, and you'll suffer, and pay for your sins, and then you'll burn up, and you'll cease to exist. Uh-uh. Rich man didn't burn up. Jesus talking about Lazarus and the rich man. Rich man's still there. He's been there over 2,000 years. And still Lazarus hasn't been able to go over and cool his tongue. He's still burning. He didn't burn up. There's no passage in there that says, oh, you're going to burn up. And then you're going to beat up. That just makes us feel good because we don't like to think that hell's forever. That soothes our conscience when we don't witness and win people to the Lord. And when they die and go to hell, then we're like, oh, well, it's, it's, it's bad. But it's not going to be so bad because I know that essentially they'll cease to exist at some point And, oh, then I won't feel it. Then the blood won't be on my hands anymore. Uh-uh. No. Hell is eternal. The Bible's clear on it. And this is another implication um, in it, that, that it says hell and destruction are never satisfied. So it's eternal. Um, okay, so the last passage that uh, is talking about hell is Proverbs 23, 14. 23, 14. Now this is kind of interesting because this is, this is talking about totally something different. This is talking about um, how to keep certain people from hell. <laughs> so Proverbs 23, 14 says, You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from hell. The context here is the proper discipline of children. That the proper discipline of children will serve as a deterrent to keep that child from going to hell. Yeah, spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, I don't say this literally, so I say this kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but basically, to keep a child from hell, you beat the hell out of them. Not literally, right? You don't beat a child. But when you discipline them properly, spanking them in a proper way, it's going to say, well, I know this hurts, and I know hell's going to hurt a lot worse. I'm going to do what mom and dad says because I want to go to heaven. I want to get saved so I don't have to go to hell, right? It's a deterrent. So proper discipline will actually steer and point a child in direction of the Lord, not in the direction of hell. There's no child that says, yeah, keep spanking me. Give me some more of that. No, then no. Now, 
Um, Proverbs, let, let, let's go to Proverbs chapter 30 real quick, and let's read a passage there. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15. Proverbs chapter 30, starting with verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. There are three things that will never be satisfied. Four things that will not say enough. Hell, Sheol, and the barren womb. The earth is never satisfied with water and fire that never says enough. So that kind of goes back with the other verse that I just read, and it, I have it right beside this verse. That's why I read it now. <laughs> so it doesn't really have any context really per se with what we're talking about. But the proper discipline of a child. Proverbs 23, 14. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from hell. Basically, Solomon's saying, if you love your son, you're going to discipline him. Guess who didn't discipline their sons and who died a tragic death? Eli, the high priest. Now, he raised Samuel right, but he didn't raise his own sons right. They were thieves. They were liars. They took bribes. They slept with the women that were working at the tabernacle, and they died on the same day. With their pride and hubris, they're like, okay, we're losing the war. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant. That's that, you know, God's with us if we do that. Well, no, they died. They were killed on the battlefield. There's really no question where they went. And, 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 and when you don't properly discipline their sons, they raise hell. They create hell. You think of David's son. He didn't, he didn't discipline Amnon when he raped his sister Tamar. And as a result, murder took place because Absalom killed Amnon. And then Absalom tried to take over his father's throne, and, and, and Absalom got killed. So that's all because of not properly disciplining your children. So we wonder why our juvenile system is full of, of rebellious kids because they're not properly disciplined, uh, been disciplined. Not only that, but the government is not allowing us to properly discipline our children as well. Now, I got spanked, and my parents never beat me. I was never physically abused. They spanked me, but I deserved every single spanking I get. I got. And even if they did spank me and they were wrong, it probably made up for a time that I got away with something anyway. And uh, I thank God that they disciplined me that way. Now, Proverbs 3.12 tells us, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines just as a father disciplines the son whom he delights. You feel that conviction in your heart when you sin? That means God loves you. He's disciplining you because he wants you to return to him. That's no different than your, your mama or your daddy giving you a spanking. My mom, she was old school. She was raised in the hills of Kentucky. So when she spanked me, she either had her wooden spoon, the fly swatter, her hand, or sometimes if I was really, really, really bad, I had to go out and pick my own switch. And my dad, his weapons of choice were his hand or his belt. Now my dad, because he was big and strong, sometimes didn't really know his own strength. And my mom had to say, whoa, whoa, go easy on the beef ward, right? You know, my, but sometimes my dad, uh, he just didn't know his own strength. And I was just a little scrawny, you know, uh, little kid. But my parents never physically abused me. And, and I know they disciplined me because they love me. I know, and spanking was a last resort. It wasn't their first go-to. And when I was raising my daughter, that wasn't my first go-to. It was the last resort. 
If all other disciplinary tactics didn't work, a spanking was in order. Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Now, there's another passage in, in uh, Hebrews. Yes, you got it, Tracy. Hebrews 12. Now, back in the olden days, before all this scholarly, biblical, higher criticism, everybody knew Paul the Apostle wrote Hebrews. But now, for some reason, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Now, it was Paul. I'm convinced. So, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 5, Ah, let's go to verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Verse 5. And you have forgotten that the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, or my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of Yahweh, the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves... He disciplines. He scourges. In other words, the Lord gets out his switch. <laughs> he scourges every son whom he receives. Moving on to verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. That's a nice way of saying that you're bastards. Yeah, you're a bastard. Or as we would say on the street, you're just a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> right? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, if a guy marries a woman who has a lot of other kids, and then he has his own children, he may not care about that woman's ch children. If they do wrong or do bad, say, ah, let mama deal with it, not my kid. I don't care. I didn't, I didn't sire that kid, not my kid. That's a wrong way to look at it. I will say that. But in a lot of cases, guys won't deal with another woman's child. It's like, yeah, and a lot of times the woman won't let him. That's true. Um, but uh, so he's saying this child is illegitimate. This child is not mine. So therefore, I have no responsibility to discipline him. I don't love him like my own flesh and blood. I will discipline him because I want to see him do right. All right. Verse nine. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. <clears throat> Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seems best to them. In other words, there come a point in time where, in my life where my mom and dad never gave me another spanking. I got too old. I learned my lessons. I grew up. I matured. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. What did my father or my mom always say before they spanked me? Now, son, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it does you. Why? I didn't understand until I became a parent and had to spank my own child. It killed me inside. But I knew I was doing the right thing. And so is the same with the parent. So um, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. We may share in his set-apartness, in his uniqueness. Verse, uh, verse 11, all discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful. <laughs> no kidding. It's not fun getting spanked. <laughs> all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I learned how to be a righteous young man because my parents loved me and cared enough to spank me when I needed it, to discipline me when, my, when I needed it. And, and that's the same way that, that God does us. He disciplines us. So pro- back to the focus verse of Proverbs 23, 14, you shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from hell. So as good parents, we discipline our children in order to do our best to do our part to keep them from hell. Now, that's not a guarantee they're going to stay away from hell because we all have free will. We all make our own choices and our own decisions, but we as parents can do everything that we can you know, because it says you train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they shall not depart from it. Doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Doesn't mean that they're going to return to to the way that you raised them. What it does mean, though, is that whenever they do wrong, they'll remember how they were raised. They'll remember and know that they've done wrong, and they're going to feel miserable for it. Now it's up to them whether they're going to repent or not and come back. It's all the balls basically in their court at that point. Uh, all right, so now let's. Let's kind of go back to the first three verses, which talked about adultery and fornication. We know that physical, we know what physical and literal adultery is. We're all grown ups. We've all had sex ed. We all had the birds and the bees talk. Well, I don't need to tell you about what that, what that is. And the proverb says that adultery and fornication leads to hell. But what is spiritual adultery? What is spiritual adultery? If adultery is sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse. Spiritual spiritual adultery would be being intimate with another god. Worshiping another god. It's idolatry. Idolatry is spiritual fornication and spiritual adultery. Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That Hebrew word before me means either before me or alongside me. In other words, you can't be running around on me and being unfaithful to me. You can't be two-timing me. You can't have two families on the side. It's, it's, it's exclusive. It's either me or them. As the Bible says, you can't serve two masters. You either love the one or hate the other. So, you know, there, there's no polygamous relationships with God. <laughs> you know, it, it's him or nothing. So I won't read this because, to be quite frank, these passages in scriptures are extremely graphic. But if you read Ezekiel chapter 16 and Ezekiel chapter 23, it talks about Judah and Israel being like two unfaithful wives to the Lord. And and, and the prophet spares no expense in, in, in detailing the depravity of Judah and Israel and comparing their spiritual adultery to whoredom, to prostitution. Now, R.A. Torrey, I just finished reading a book by him. He, he was in the 1900s, early 1900s. He was a contemporary of Dwight L. Moody. Uh, there's a classic book I just read called How to Pray by R.A. Torrey, one of the best books on prayer that I have ever read. And this is what he said. What is an idol? Anything that takes the place of God, anything that is supreme object of our affection is God and his word and the Messiah, the supreme object of our affection? Or do we have something that takes the place of God? You know, this is the, the coffee with Chris for this morning, but it kind of applies here. The Lord was speaking to me yesterday, and after the resurrection, Peter's feeling all bad because he betrayed the Lord. And he says, you know what? I blew it. I can't be an apostle. 
I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna do whatever. What, what you know? What I knew how to do. I'm gonna go back to fishing. Who's with me? Come on, guys. Let's go fishing. And so after the Lord appeared to him, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your occupation as a fisherman? Do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, Lord. He said, then feed my sheep. Do you love the Lord more than Netflix? Do you love the Lord more than your computer games? Do you love the Lord more than that, you know, than alcohol, drugs, food? You can make anything an idol. You can make anything a sin. You can even make another person an, an idol. You know, I see these women who follow their guys around and, and worship them and do everything for them. And vice versa, I see the same thing, guys going after girls that way. Sometimes we make our kids our idols because we wrap up all of our lives in our, in our kids. So anything can take the money, reputation, power, technology, whatever. So what is an idol, Ari Tori says? Anything that takes the place of God, anything that is the supreme object of our affection. So it could be anything, entertainment, careers, material things, substance abuse, whatever. So um, we can apply these verses that Solomon is warning his son, saying, look, don't get mixed up in, in, in an adulterous or fornicative relationship because it's going to ruin your reputation. It's going to ruin your power and authority as nobles, kings, judges, ambassadors, etc. And it's going to look bad on us. But it's going to be the gateway for hell for you. So we can apply that in a spiritual way because just as there's literal physical adultery, there's spiritual adultery, which is stepping out on God, which is idolatry, which is having another God before us. And so whatever that may be, so we can learn less because those are gateways to hell too, whatever we put before God. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for the awesomeness of your word and just how plainly and clearly that it speaks to us. And uh, when we read it, it just doesn't go into our brain. We don't just understand it and acknowledge it in our brain, but we feel it in our heart. We feel it in our soul because it's speaking to our spirit. It's speaking to our soul. And your words are the only words that contain life. This book is the only book that can literally change and transform my life. I can, read, I can read all the self-help books that are out there, and they may do some good. I can read Shakespeare, and that might be quite entertaining. But none of that is literally going to change my life. It may change my life temporarily, but then I forget about it. I slide back into my old habits. Your word is life. After all of your disciples left you, most of your disciples in John 6, 6, because, uh, yeah, John 6, 66, you know, you say, hey, hey, 12, are you guys going to leave too? And I think it was Peter says, where are we going to go? You're the only ones who have the words of life. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the life that it brings us. We thank you for the conviction, the discipline that it brings us, because we know that through that sweet conviction, though it feels horrible, we know that it is an expression of your love to draw us back to you, to bring us to a place of repentance so we can be reconnected back into a right relationship with you through your son, Messiah Yeshua who took all our sin, all our punishment upon himself and paid that price, paid that death penalty for us so that we wouldn't have to endure that. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.